ability to express oils out of olives. She says it's the only thing, the only food that made sense to be able to pull oil out of, but you'd have to have what's called the cold press process, which came out about 1900. To be able to extract oils out, it was never used in large scale the way we do in the current American diet. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm an archeological scientist, and I study the health and dietary histories of ancient peoples using bone biochemistry and ancient DNA. And I'm here today because I want to talk to you about the paleo diet. It's one of America's fastest growing diet fads. Uh, the main idea behind it is that the key to longevity and optimal health is to abandon our modern agricultural diets, which make us ill, and move far back in time to our Paleolithic ancestors more than 10,000 years ago and eat like them. Now, I'm really interested in this idea because it, it purports to put archaeology in action, to take information we know about the past and use it in the present to help us today. Now, this idea was, was really started in the 1970s um, with this book, uh, The Stone Age Diet, and it's diversified since then into several variants, including the Paleo Diet, the Primal Blueprint, the New Evolution Diet, and Neanderthal. And most of the, uh, the, the, the language of these diets makes references to anthropology, nutrition science, and evolutionary medicine. Uh, the diet does seem primarily targeted at men, so if you look at advertisements and descriptions, uh, they have virile cavemen-like images, uh, things like live primal, uh, lots of red meat, um, and uh, the, the, it can basically be, the idea behind it can be broken down into four parts. One is that our agricultural diets today make us chronically ill, that they are out of sync with our biology. And two, that we need to abandon these agricultural diets um, that started during the agricultural period and move back in time to the Paleolithic and eat more like our ancestors over 10,000 years ago. Third, that we know what these diets were like and what they were like was they had a lot of meat. They were mainly meat-based and that that was supplemented with vegetables and fruits and some nuts and oils, but it definitely did not contain grains or legumes or dairy. Okay, so what she's saying is she's summarizing saying that the, the people purporting the paleo diet and the keto diet, uh, that they're saying that the diet was mostly meat. But she's going to go on to basically comment about that because there are carbon datings for the way to analyze feces. And Dr. Van from Texas University was able to discuss this topic and say that, you know, uh, our ancestors millions of years ago uh, ate principally vegetables and fruit and uh, various things that grew like yams and potatoes and things. So they, they definitely didn't have dairy or much in the way of, of animal product per se. But so let's, let's go on to hear what her concepts or theories are. And fourth, that if we emulate this ancient diet, it will improve our health and make us live longer. And so what I want to talk to you about today is that this, this version of the paleo diet that's promoted in popular books, on TV, on self-help websites, and in the overwhelming majority of, of press has no basis in archaeological reality. So thank you. 
No, I'm not going to end there. I will, I will explain. Okay, so what I want to do as an archaeologist is go through this, do a little bit of myth-busting of, of some of these foundational archaeological concepts upon, upon which it's based, and then I want to talk to you about what we really do know um, from the archaeological record and from scientific studies about what Paleolithic people did eat. So myth one is that humans are evolved to eat meat and that Paleolithic peoples consumed large quantities of meat. Humans have no known anatomical, physiological, or genetic adaptations to meat consumption. Quite the opposite, we have many adaptations to plant consumption. Take, for example, vitamin C. Now, carnivores can make their own vitamin C because vitamin C is found in plants. If you don't eat plants, you need to be able to make it yourself. We can't make it. We have to consume it from plants. We have a longer digestive tract than carnivores. That's because our food needs to stay in our bodies longer, so we have more time to digest plant matter. We need more surface area, we need more microbes. We have generalist dentitions, so we have big molars that are, that are there to, to shred fibrous plant tissue. We do not have carnassials, which are the specialized teeth that carnivores have to shred meat. And we do actually have some genetic mutations in some populations that are adaptive to animal... Okay, so it's important to recognize she's saying that overall the human species is adapted to eat plants. We have a longer digestive tract to keep the foods in longer to digest it, mixed in with microbes. We have the... Uh, the teeth structure, the dental structure that allows us to chew and crunch on vegetables and uh, various uh, fruit and so forth. And we don't have the sharp canine teeth. And she's going on further to talk about maybe some adaptions. We're able to adapt, but we're not designed to eat uh, animal product on a regular basis. Let's go further here. Because we're all talking about tips for longevity and well-being. Uh, and we're going to get on to some supplement and stem cell and hormonal things as well consumption, but it's to milk, not meat. And these arose in certain populations during agricultural periods, primarily in Europe and Africa. The meat, I call this the meat myth. It, the idea behind it is that we should eat all this red meat, but that's just really not true. If you look at this plate of meat here, for example, these are from fattened cattle. These are domestic animals. Anything a Paleolithic person would have eaten would have probably been very lean, probably small, and they wouldn't really have eaten that much meat. Of course, there's also bone marrow and organs. These would have been very important. And we see evidence of harvesting a bone marrow in faunal assemblages where you see characteristic cutting open of the bones like you see here for marrow extraction. Now, sure, people did eat meat, and especially in the Arctic and areas where there's long periods where plants are not available, they would have eaten a lot of meat. But people that lived in more temperate regions or tropical regions would have had a very large plant portion of their diet. So where does this meat myth come from? There's really two places, and one is the inherent bias in the archaeological record. Bone is 80% mineral by weight. It's going to preserve better and longer over thousands of years than delicate plant remains. But the other issue comes from some early bone biochemistry studies that were performed on Neanderthals and early people. This bone biochemistry study is based on something called nitrogen-stable isotope analysis. It's complicated, but I'm going to try and break it down. The basic idea is that you are what you eat. And so we, there's nitrogen-15 and nitrogen-14, heavy and light versions of nitrogen. And we consume this nitrogen in our food. 
But with, there's one important difference, and that is with each step that you go up the trophic hierarchy, the amount of the heavier isotope increases. So if you measure the amount of heavy isotope in the bone, you can infer where that individual was on a food chain. This is an example of a generalized isotopic model, and I've plotted where plants generally fall, and then above them are the herbivores, and then above them the carnivores. But one of the problems is, is that not all ecosystems conform to this model. There's a lot of regional variability, so if you don't understand the region, you can come to erroneous conclusions. So I'm going to give you some examples. We can take East Africa. If we measure animals and humans, ancient humans, in East Africa, we see some very strange patterns. First of all, how can a human be higher than a lion? Lions only eat other animals. And then, how is this herbivore above a lion? Well, it turns out that the food that you eat is not the only contributor to these isotopic values, and that aridity can also have an impact. So what we're likely seeing here is differences in water access. So let's move out of the savanna and move into the tropical areas. Let's look at the ancient Maya. Again, we see something anomalous. We see the ancient Maya lining up with jaguars. Now, we know the ancient Maya had a diet heavily reliant on corn. So what's happening here? We don't exactly know, but we think this may have to do with the way they performed agriculture and how they fertilized their crops. Now let's go to the Pleistocene. We see some really interesting patterns here, too. We see reindeer plotting very low in the range of plants. We see wolves plotting normally where you would see herbivores, and we see mammoths spanning all three levels at once, plants, herbivores, and carnivores. So what we think is happening here is that in very, very cold climates, animals eat unusual things. And in this case, we think what is happening is these mammoths are eating lichens and bark, and that's giving them very strange values. So if we now go to humans, ancient humans, Paleolithic humans, and Neanderthals, we see that they plot in the same isotopic space as jaguar or as um, wolves and hyenas. Now that's true, but as I've shown, if you don't have a good control over the regional isotopic ecology, you can come to an erroneous conclusion. And I think it's premature to say this is very strong evidence of meat consumption, given how very little we really know about the Paleolithic ecosystems. So myth two is that Paleolithic peoples did not eat whole grains or legumes. Now, we have stone tool evidence from at least 30,000 years ago. That's 20,000 years before the invention of agriculture of people using stone tools that look like mortars and pestles to grind up seeds and grain. More recently, we've been developing techniques where we can actually measure this thing called dental calculus. It's very interesting. It's fossilized dental plaque. We can go into the individual mouths of people, pull out that plaque, and recover microfossils of plants and other remains. My team is working on developing methods to extract DNA and proteins, and other research groups are focusing on these microfossils like starch grains, pollen, and phytoliths. Now, we're still in early days here, but even with the limited research we have, we can say that there is an abundance of plant remains inside the dental calculus of Paleolithic peoples. And these things include grains, including barley. We're finding barley inside Neanderthal teeth, or inside the plaque. We also have legumes and tubers. So myth three is that paleo diet foods in the, in, the, in the diet, fad diet, are what our Paleolithic ancestors ate. That's just not true. Every single food that's pictured in these advertisements um, are all domesticated foods. They're all products of farming, of agriculture. 
but from the Neolithic transition. So let's give an example. Let's take bananas. Bananas are the ultimate farmer's food. They can't even reproduce in the wild anymore. We've actually bred out their ability to make seeds. So every banana you have ever eaten is a genetic clone of every other banana grown from cuttings. They're definitely a farmer's food. If you were to eat a wild banana, it is so full of seeds that I bet many people in this room wouldn't even recognize it as edible. Let's take salads. That seems like a really great paleo diet food, except that we've radically changed the ingredients to suit our needs. So wild lettuces contain a great deal of latex, which is indigestible and irritates our, our gastrointestinal system. It, it's bitter. Um, the, the leaves are tough. We've domesticated them to be softer, to produce bigger leaves, to remove the latex and the bitterness, remove the spines that naturally grow on the leaves and stems of wild varieties, to make them tastier for us. The tomato that's shown here does, it lacks the tomatine and solanine toxins that are present in its wild relatives, which are all members of the poisonous nightshade family. If we look at oil, it's true that olive oil is the only natural vegetable oil that can be harvested without synthetic chemicals, except it still requires at least rudimentary presses to remove it, something that no Paleolithic person would have ever built. This is a farmer's food. This is a model diet I found on a website. Okay, that's a really important statement, that the ability to express oils out of olives, she says it's the only thing, the only food that made sense to be able to pull oil out of, but you'd have to have what's called the cold press process, which came out about 1900. To be able to extract oils out, it was never used in large scale the way we do in the current American diet. So I, I tend to agree that the, the whole food approach makes sense. Uh, but it doesn't make sense to add olive oil as a new recent phenomena that isn't really part of uh, healthy living and, and eating. So I, I think that she's bringing up a great point here, and we need to uh, pay attention because uh, the whole idea of uh, longevity is eat essentially unprocessed foods, right? Does that make sense to you? So the more unprocessed foods that you eat, the better you're going to do. So let, let's uh, continue uh, on with her model. She's talking about some of the early vegetables that were quite different than uh, today's hybrid vegetables, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't eat more vegetables and more fruit. We do need to eat them in a wide variety. It looks like a delicious and nutritious breakfast, and I'm sure it is, but it's not something a Paleolithic person would have had access to. First of all, the blueberries are from New England, the avocados are from Mexico, and the eggs are from China. This would have never appeared on any Paleolithic plate. And last, we have this problem of size. Domestic blueberries are twice the size of wild blueberries. We've already talked about bananas. You look at avocados. A wild avocado has maybe a couple millimeters of fruit on it, and the same goes for wild, wild olives. And of course, chickens. Chickens are prolific producers. They lay eggs almost every single day. They're predictable, large, and abundant. If you're trying to collect wild eggs, they don't lay year-round, and they're not as easy to find, and they're typically small. But maybe you're not convinced, so I'm going to give just a couple more examples. So this you may all recognize as broccoli. Broccoli did not even exist in the Paleolithic period. What you see on the left is wild broccoli. Looks quite different. Now, wild broccoli is also wild cabbage, wild cauliflower, wild kale, wild kohlrabi, and wild Brussels sprouts. They're all the same species. The only difference is they're different cultivars. We've selectively bred the same species to, to 
produce the kind of food that we like best. These are human inventions. Broccoli, I think, is an interesting example because it's this weird thing. What even is broccoli? It's such a strange-looking vegetable. So I, I, I think it's important to recognize that she's talking about uh, the some of the beliefs that certain vegetables weren't really as prevalent or pro present as they are today. Uh, so we just, again, need to understand that uh, hybrid or changes in broccoli or bananas, these things weren't as starchy in those days, but it's okay because starch breaks down slowly. I'm going to show you a video here coming up about uh, fructose, but she talks also about uh, the, the idea that uh, sugar cane, you, you'd have to eat uh, the equivalent of eight feet long of sugar cane to uh, equal like the amount in a soda pop. So really keeping in mind uh, the American diet and of course the use of food preservatives and chemicals and what's going on with the microbiome, all these things are very important. And I, I, I think it's a good uh, beginning to recognize uh, that we as Americans eat too many calories. So here, let's jump into this part where she talks about the sugar cane. I think it's 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 pretty good portrayal. Of sugar cane, do you think do you think you'd have to eat? I brought some sugar cane. Um, how many feet of sugar sugar cane do you think you'd have to to consume to reach that level? Any ideas? One. How many sticks do you think you'd have to eat? They're pretty big. Not quite 40 feet. You have to eat 8.5 feet of sugarcane to reach, to reach that level. That's an awful lot of sugar. There is no physical way that a Paleolithic person could have possibly eaten that much sugarcane, even if they really, really wanted to. And now you can consume it in about 20 minutes. So we've, by decoupling the whole food from the nutrients inside of it, um, we trick our bodies and we can, we can override the, the mechanisms that we've evolved to signal fullness and satiation. And these are the three main lessons I think we can learn from real Paleolithic diets. There's no one correct diet, but dietary diversity is key, that we need to eat fresh foods when possible, and that we need to eat whole foods. So anthropology and evolutionary medicine have a lot to teach us about ourselves. And new technologies are opening up new windows into the past. Please give us a review on iTunes and we'll be happy out of the group of reviews to choose a lucky winner of one of our award-winning products. It could be Esterblock, Adrenal DMG, Stem Cell Strong, or even Power and Speed. We'll ship you a bottle at no cost. You'll enjoy it just from basically giving us a review on iTunes. Also, visit DelgadoProtocol.com. That's DelgadoProtocol.com and take our free hormonal quiz. Looking forward to assisting you to be your absolute best.